This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day two. Now, next up, we have Staliana Saras. Pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me yet another time. I'm really excited to be talking about uh, through the video that I took this morning um, about you know the documentation side of things from from a UX research perspective. Um, I'll be live, so I'll be answering any questions live. It might even be better. That's um, great. So okay. Well, you can go ahead Let's and share. Play. Let's go. Hi, well, thanks so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to be talking about um, documentation. I know it's not a very uh, digestible topic, but um, I'm hoping we can make it fun today by looking at what we can borrow from psychologists um, to improve our documentation. So first, I want to start by calling out, preaching to the choir, that a deep understanding of the people we're designing for is, of course, cardinal to a product's success. And a large body of the work that we do is around making sure that we're really understanding a user's end-to-end -end journey so that we can figure out where the pain points are, alleviate them in turn, and then enhance any motivations as well. So a deep understanding of the people we're designing for is a must. But our research process can be really unclear to our stakeholders. You know, if we, if we look at those who aren't directly involved, it's you, know, you spoke to some users, you put a couple of sticky notes up, and then they get this really big list of insights and expensive recommendations from our research that they're not always clear on how we got to it. And one of the things that I want to call out is that some of our artifacts are such high fidelity that they, they give this impression of legitimacy and accuracy of the information that they hold. But all it does is it takes one person to go, hold on, how exactly did, um, in, in this case of this persona, um, how exactly did interviewing 10 users lead, lead to this uh, personality profiling? I mean, these are things that we ask ourselves as researchers also, like, did you do a Myers-Briggs on, on all, all your samples? Did you, how exactly did you derive this, you know, finger in the air, uh, introvert to extrovert delineation that we see here? And we see this time and time again. An immediate solution to this is to bring clients along on the journey, uh, stakeholders, if you're in product. So we bring them along the journey and they kind of ask less questions because they've been part of it. But what about the stakeholders that we don't have direct access to? How do we take them on the journey? You know, the ones that are going to grab this file that's been, <laughs> the file emerges from, from the dead. It's been collecting dust in somebody's, you know, documents folder or on the cloud, obviously. And we grab this and we open it up and try and make some sort of meaning out of it. So how, how do we take the people that will grab this file later in the future, how do we take them on the journey? This is what I want to talk about today. So as it stands, my, my strong belief is that the user research report comes in too many shapes and sizes. We don't have a standard in our industry, and this oftentimes leads to missing key information and a bunch of different structures um, to look at. This impacts our ability to easily consume the research that we're looking at, especially when we're trying to look at multiple documents at the same time to, to really understand the existing body of knowledge. It impacts our ability to appraise the quality of it when key information is missing, especially, as well as, more importantly, design our own research, which builds on it. So if we don't know what research has already been done and we can't easily consume it or appraise its quality, then it's very, very tricky to build on top of that and really expound our knowledge versus repeating things that we already knew. 
alas, we're not the first industry to be looking at reporting on insights about human beings. And there's this kind of the user experience is kind of the, the modern day psychology where we're researching how, how we can better use technology to, to serve people's uh, people's lives through really understanding their attitudes and behaviors. So the so field of psychology has been doing this for, for a really, really long time. And something that I want to call out, um, I guess a little bit about me, I started off my, my journey in UX, uh, I guess, studying a psychology degree at the University of Melbourne. So the structure was really, really heavily um, ingrained in, in my work at the beginning. So for me, this was something that was continuously spoken about. Obviously, we were trained in this method, but, but what I want to do is kind of acknowledge that privilege and my main passion and purpose, I guess, for, for this session especially, is to kind of debunk some of this because it's not as complicated as it looks. And I want to empathize with the fact that if you haven't been trained in this method, it looks really, really convoluted and confusing. Um, and I want to desensitize us as an industry as much as possible. I mean, play my part. Um, in desensitizing whoever I can reach um, in using this method because it's in the hard basket at the moment, but it's pretty simple um, as a structure. So I want to talk about that today. At a high level, the, the structure of um, the academic journal that's used in psychology is fairly simple. So we start off with an abstract, which is the executive summary. We then move into the introduction, which is really about building a case for our research. So it's building the groundwork for why our research is important and why we are justified in running the research. The method is a step-by-step -step kind of procedure. It includes who we spoke to, so the participants, as well as what materials we used. The results then goes on to present the results of our study and the discussion, which is where we start um, making inferences about uh, what the study means what the results of our study uh, mean and what we can make of them. So what inference we can make about our population. There's also the references section at the end, but that's pretty intuitive. So I won't be covering that today. I want to kick off with the introduction and then we're going to loop back to the abstract at the end, given it's the executive summary and it's one that you go on to do to write up last. So let's have a look at the introduction in a bit more detail. So why was the introduction section designed? It's really, really easy to fall into this trap of getting excited about a problem space or research question and just want to jump straight into the data collection. And this is really common in our space in UX. You know, the, the sentiment tends to be, let's just go and talk to users. But others might have researched the exact same topic before. If we don't understand what body of knowledge we already have, then we can't build on it. And so what happens is we might end up wasting time and money learning things that we already knew. So the introduction, the, the elements of the introduction are kind of designed to help prevent that from happening. First, the introduction starts with why, which is the, stating the importance of the problem under investigation. So Simon Sinek would be very pleased. <laughs> Always start with why. It then, we, it's then followed by a literature review, which is really uh, an investigation of what we know already. Through the investigation of what we know already, of course, we might uncover a gap. Uh, and so it's really clearly stating what the gap is. So what is it from all the things that we've explored in the literature review, uh, looking at our existing knowledge, what is it that we don't know? Our aim then goes to address the gap. So how will we build on this previous knowledge by addressing the gap um, in the literature, which is our existing knowledge? 
And then the last thing in an introduction is really a set of hypotheses, which are educated guesses. It can be one or, or more about what we think will happen. Now, something I didn't mention earlier is that the hypothesis is cardinal in protecting us from another potential pitfall. Doing this in the introduction means that we, we lock ourselves in around what we expect to happen, and we really state out what we're looking to investigate. So we can't just go and collect a bunch of data and then make whatever meaning we want out of them. So the hypothesis, writing that down in the introduction before you've gone to the data collection point, protects you from adding any bias to your inter interpretation of making whatever meaning out of your data. Now, I want to hone into a specific part in UX that we, I feel we really struggle with. Of course, this is all through um, anecdotal evidence, through my experience. But something that I see time and time again is that what I spoke about around this jumping straight to this, we need to talk to users without looking at relying on existing data uh, or body of knowledge to make some of our arguments for us. So something that I've, that I've illustrated here is a quick little mental check that the introduction um, demands of us to do. So first, obviously we look at the existing body of knowledge through the literature review, as I mentioned, but then it asks of us, is there a gap in our knowledge? If the answer is no, then we don't need to conduct research. If the answer is, is yes, it asks of us that we make a secondary question, that we ask a secondary question. So does addressing this gap even add, add value? If it doesn't add value, then there's no need to conduct research. But should it add value, or should we suspect that it does, it then um, gives us the, the, the kind of um, idea that, yeah, we should run research because there's a gap in our knowledge and addressing said gap um, will bring value. So the, the thing to note here is that we don't always need to go out and, and get new information. We can leverage a lot of the existing body of knowledge to make some of our arguments for us. Let's go on to the method. So the method was designed to protect us from this trap, which is skipping over some details of how we conducted an experiment. This is, you know, we, we tend to do this because it's tedious to write down every single step that we took and have no immediate personal use to us. I mean, we know what we did after all. But a clear method is cardinal for someone to appraise the quality of our research. And if we don't know what we did, or, or if, if I'm looking at um, a previous report and I don't know what they did, then I cannot replicate it to verify the results. So we can't verify whether it's sound or valid. And when we're looking at literature review that, that we address in the introduction, really what we're doing is looking through the method to see, sure, we're, we're appraising the whole report, but really the, the method is where you go, okay, how did these, this team or, or this group of people, how exactly did they come to their, how did they conduct the experiment? How did they come to their conclusions? What kind of data did they collect? And so the elements of the, the, the method are, are three part. We've got the participants, the method, the, sorry, participants, the materials, and then the procedure. And I'll go through this one at a time. So looking at the participants, we first need a sample size. So how many people were part of your research? If you're doing a classic usability study, this might be a sample size of five. Then we look at any demographic characteristics which are unique to your study. So who 
who did you recruit and on what, what basis? How did you divide up your sample? How did you make your sample representative of the wider population? Which also pertains to any eligibility and exclusion criteria. For example, I recently worked on a government project whereby it was internal and the, only, the entire population had to be Australian citizens to even have access to this internal tool. So basically, when I was recruiting a sample to test uh, from a usability perspective or any qualitative insights um, or quantitative that I was collecting, one of the exclusion criteria that I, that I had in there was non-Australian citizens. So because in the population there is no example, there, there will never be a case of a non-Australian, whether that's for the right or wrong reasons, in this population there wouldn't be any non-Australians. And so therefore, I made sure to... to um, assuage any of those extraneous variables by making sure my sample had no Australian, no non-Australians. So it was only Australian-based. That's the participants. Then we have any measures used and tools used, which make the materials and measures. So if you use a system usability score as an example, you need to clearly uh, capture that in the method section as well as any tools you use. So whether you prototype through Envision, whether you use um, Askable for recruitment, Optimal Workshop for, for card sorting, so on and so forth. The last part of the method is the step-by-step -step procedure, how the data was collected and how the data was analyzed. So you need to be really, really clear about exactly how you conducted your, your study, how you collected the data and how it was analyzed. Now, I wanna hone in on a specific problem again through my experience in UX and reading different reports from, from multiple bodies, um, whether agency or internal reports that I've read and talk about a common theme that I see as an issue. So this particularly pertains to how we write up our participants. So every study has a population of users, which will, or people which will benefit from the research. That, that makes up our population, which is every single person, um, in our case, in the user base. What we do when we, we can't possibly research everybody, you know, some populations or user bases are really, really large in size. So what we do is we, we grab a subset or a portion of them to form our sample. So we only ever talk to the sample. And then the aim is that from the studies that we conduct with our sample, we generalize the findings to make claims about the wider population. But a key, key issue is if we're not clear about how we derived that sample, uh, and all we say are, are really broad brushstroke remarks, like, you know, we spoke to five users, we spoke to 10 users, without really clarifying how we grabbed that sample from the population and what was the inclusion and exclusion criteria, then we can't, somebody reading your report afterwards can't verify whether what you, you just got the same the same group of people. Now, I know I'm using an extreme whereby we've completely skewed the results to one type of user or one um, type of person. Um, but the point I'm trying to really push here is that we can't tell that there is no way for somebody to know if this happened or if the, the sample is skewed or not. So really clearly reporting on sampling procedures is cardinal to anybody when appraising your research afterwards. Let's take a deeper look into the results. So it's very easy to fall into the trap of looking at your results at face value and making huge inferential leaps about their meaning. But the descriptive statistics of your sample might not be statistically significant. And we'll go into this in a sec. If they're not statistically significant, it means you don't have confidence in the results and therefore you can't generalize the finding to the wider population. 
An additional thing the results section tries to protect us from is this, this issue of blending your interpretation with the results, which makes it hard for the audience to derive any alternative conclusion. So the results section demands that we present our results in order of the aims and hypotheses to tell a really clear narrative that follows through from the introduction, to add the descriptive statistics and the inferential statistics where relevant, and I'm going to go into this. I know descriptive and inferential um, are heavy words. I'll, I'll, we'll look into them in a sec. And then lastly, the results section of is just really avoids any interpretation of the meaning of the results. It's just your results stated. The interpretation will happen in the discussion, which is a section after this. So going into descriptive statistics, the descriptive statistics really are any data when you're doing a quantitative study, it's the data that you collected that pertains to your sample. So say we did the, the thing that we're looking at here is obviously a histogram. We're looking at the results of a um, results from our sample from the study called the user experience questionnaire. So this is very similar to the system usability score. We don't need to go too much into it, but essentially it measures user experience on these six, six variables, attractiveness, the pragmatic qualities of an app, so ease of use, speed, et cetera, and then the hedonic qualities, so stimulation and novelty. As you can see from here, stimulation and novelty just visually performs much less than the pragmatic qualities of the app, um, and this could be a really stark kind of um, concerning scenario where the feel-good hedonic qualities of your application uh, or product tested really, really poorly uh, at the, the, in your sample. So we oftentimes tend to negate looking at inferential statistics. Uh, and I want to go into this because it's really, really problematic. So essentially, inferential statistics are statistics that are applied above the descriptive and they pertain to our population. So they give us a better understanding of the precision of the estimate and help us make inferences from our sample to the wider population. Inferential statistics are where we derive our confidence in our findings. And as you can see here in this table, stimulation and novelty are not statistically significant. So you can tell by the really large width of the confidence interval, uh, which pertains to the precision of the estimate of the mean, which you can see is the average result from our sample. And when we look at confidence, our p-value, none of them are below 0.05, which is where we would say, uh, in psychology at least, that it is a statistically significant result. So you see what happened is that oftentimes we tend to present these findings uh, which pertain to our, our sample, so the descriptive statistics, without any mention or any calculation of the inferential statistics. And we, we mislead our stakeholders because we're making the wrong conclusions. A graph like this shows stimulation and novelty performed really, really poorly. But when we looked at the inferential statistics, we realized, hold on, stimulation and novelty were not statistically significant, and we do not have confidence in those results. So presenting to, to your stakeholders that, oh, the app just doesn't feel good would obviously raise alarm bells and it would raise alarm bells um, for the wrong reasons. Moving on to the discussion. Um, it's really, really easy to fall into this trap of refraining from sharing the flaws of your study and being defensive when questioned about the quality of them. And this is really, really common in our field and something that we really need to start building or continue to build a really thick skin uh, about because the flaws of our study uh, are really, really important to call out so that we're on the front foot with them. 
So acknowledging the limitations of your study is actually an advantage to us because first, it, it, it puts us on the front foot. Like we are, not every study will discover the world at a time and it helps us build the case for future research. So the elements of a discussion, we've got first a start of the summary of the hypothesis. So did what we think would happen actually happen? It's an interpretation of, uh, of our findings. So what do our findings mean? Again, that it points to the results, but this is where we start talking about the meaning of our findings. We've got the limitations. So how our study was compromised, any future directions, so what do we need to delve deeper into next, which obviously sells future research, and then any conclusions that we can make from this study. The last bit is the abstract, which is our executive summary. And here, what, what it really tries to solve is this problem of falling into the trap of thinking that our audience will have time to read our full report in detail. But, uh, you know, people are busy, and it's not just executives that are busy. <laughs> uh, fellow researchers will also be busy trying to plan future research when they have a grab your report, and they have to go through many research journals or reports at the one, at the one time. So, abstract is really, really key um, when summarized in helping your audience gauge whether they need to, it's kind of like, a, do I need to spend more time going through this report? It's, it's the sales pitch for your report for, for me to see when I'm looking at other um, journals, do, do I want to invest more time? Is, does this have any relation to my, my piece of work or is it separate? So the elements of the abstract section are really, really simple. Um, in that there's one element, the key element of each of all the sections um, that's described in the abstract. So the start with why, um, sample characteristics, summary of the results, summary of the main findings, as well as the summary of the implications of your study. And where we need to improve here is that our executive summary isn't just about the why, it needs to have sample data, results, um, which have the descriptive and the inferential, summary of the main findings, and implications of the study's findings. And obviously the inferential pertain to, to what if we're doing a quantitative study. So I want to be clear on that. There's obviously no inferential statistics um, that are as necessary when we're talking about qualitative data. So this is something that I get a lot. All this is great, but we just don't have time or budget for it. And I want to really get you to challenge this thinking because what we don't have time for is wasting human capital and dollars on research, quote unquote, which isn't valid nor sound. Insofar as our research is to inform large scale product decisions, which directly impact a large scale user base, um, there's, there's people behind this. So insofar as you know, we're gonna do research that informs what, what decisions we'll make to help these people, then we really need to lift our game. Cutting research corners may give you this false impression that you're making fast progress. But if your research isn't valid, sound, nor building on existing knowledge, then can we really call it research? Thank you so much. Happy to take questions. Thank you.